introduce today's speaker, Sarah Dillard Pope, Minokin Foundation Executive Director. Sarah? Good afternoon, as Paul said, I'm Sarah Pope. I'm the Executive Director of the Minokin Foundation in Warsaw, Virginia. We're in the heart of the Northern Neck region. We own and operate a 500-acre property that was the home and plantation of Francis Lightfoot Lee, a signer of the Declaration of Independence. We manage the site, which is also part of the Rappahannock River Valley National Wildlife Refuge, really as a 500-acre classroom for heritage and natural resource conservation. We're very proud to be co-sponsoring today's lecture with VHS. We have a long friendship with the Historical Society that goes back to our organization's founding in the mid-1990s. VHS has really been a mentor to us as our little organization has grown over the past two decades through the wise advice of Charlie Bryan, of Paul Levingood, as well as Nelson Lankford, who helps us tell the story of Minokin through the Banner Lecture Series. Some of you may remember the Banner Lecture presented by Calder Loth several years ago, where he detailed the poignant, strange, wonderful story of Minokin. Um, this National Historic Landmark and pristine Georgian gem partially collapsed in the 1960s. However, the fine woodwork was saved and the dining room can actually be seen upstairs in the Story of Virginia exhibit. Um, so let's go on to the presentation. Uh, Francis Lightfoot Lee was born in a position of power and influence, made possible through the groundwork laid by the three previous generations of his Northern Neck family. And his position was strengthened through his marriage to Rebecca Taylor, daughter of John Taylor II. Dr. John Coombs today is going to talk about the rise of a distinct class of affluent families to economic, social, and political dominance in Virginia during the 17th and early 18th centuries. It's without, without doubt one of the most important developments in the Old Dominion's early history. As a group, however, the gentry were far from homogenous. Our speaker, Dr. John Coombs, will discuss the foundations of power that were common across all ranks of the elite as well as the circumstances that allowed the Lees, Talos, and their neighbors and kinfolk, the Carters, to achieve distinction as the colony's first families. A little background on Dr. Coombs. He's an associate professor of history at Hampton Sydney College. He received a BA in political science from Arizona State University in 1989, and his PhD in history from the College of William and Mary in 2004. His research focuses on the politics, society and economy of the early Chesapeake. Dr. Coombs' forthcoming book, The Rise of Virginia Slavery, offers a major reassessment of the timing and character of the colony's conversion from white to black labor and the role that pivotal transition played in the emergence of a dominant class of gentry planners and the formation of African-American society. He's also the co-editor with Douglas Bradburn of an essay collection entitled Early Modern Virginia, Reconsidering the Old Dominion, which was published by the University of Virginia Press in 2011. Please join me in welcoming John Coombs, who will speak to us about the planner oligarchy on Virginia's Northern Neck.
Thank you, and uh, thank you all for attending today. Before I start, I, I, I want to express my, my gratitude to Paul Levengood and the Virginia Historical Society for allowing me to come and inviting me to come and speak today. Uh, for a, a, a kid who grew up in Newport News, enthralled with Virginia history, the opportunity to, to participate in this lecture series is a real honor. Um, I also want to thank Sarah Dillard Pope and the Minokin Foundation for co-sponsoring um, this, this lecture today. And a couple on a couple of personal uh, expressions of gratitude, I'd like to thank uh, Taylor Negus, Hamden Sydney Class of 88, um, who uh, introduced me to Paul and Sarah last fall. And I would be seriously remiss in not uh, thanking um, John Taylor Emery, Hamden City, Hamden City Class of 92, who uh, generously supplied me with the image of John Taylor the first that appears there on, on the title page for this lecture and I use uh, throughout the talk. I mean, I think it really, it's really a, a great benefit um, for somebody who studies Virginia history that when you find yourself in a jam, you can simply call up the current master of Mount Airy and ask him, you know, can you give me an image of your, your ancestor? And boom, there it is in my, my email box, and particularly an image taken by an accomplished photographer like Taylor Emery. Um, and as an editorial note, I should mention that no Carters or Lees participated either in the arranging for or preparing of, the, preparing of this talk. Um, okay. Uh, the rise of the Virginia gentry has long been a subject of interest to historians, but, the trace, but in tracing their story, scholars have tended to emphasize those clans sometimes designated as the first families of Virginia, who occupied the highest rungs of the colony's social and political hierarchy. Bernard Balin, in his path-breaking article, Politics and Social Structure in Virginia, published in 1957, mentioned Virginia's great 18th century names, such as Bland, Burl, Byrd, Carter, Diggs, and Ludwell, and particularly focusing on the fact that the progenitors of this aristocracy, as he described them, uh, generally arrived a decade either side of 1655. Edmund Morgan's specific mention of the Ludwells, Byrds, Carters, Spencers, Wormleys, and Corbins in the chapter of his landmark 1975 study, American Slavery, American Freedom, focusing on the conversion to, from white to black labor in 17th century Virginia, similarly highlighted the upper echelons of the colony's elite. And more recently, the late Emory Evans, longtime professor at the University of Maryland, in a 2009 study, A Topping People, The Rise and Decline of Virginia's Old Political Elite, 1680 to 1790, focused on 21 families whose combined political, social, and economic power, he argued, quote, allowed them to become the most influential people in the colony. But to concentrate on the FFEs bake in, bakes in, if you will, an oft-overlooked geographic bias in an analysis of the gentry's rise. Um, in a recent, recent scholarship by Lorena Walsh, longtime student of the early Chesapeake, one, uh, um, one of the path-breaking natures of her work is the fact, is her discovery and, and uh, argument of the fact that far from being kind of a homogenous colony economically, Virginia actually was an amalgamation of three different subregions. Um, and here I have them highlighted on this map. As you can see, the northern neck um, region was really split in half. Part of it, the northern half, the Potomac River counties of the northern neck, were part of what Walsh called the Orinoco uh, uh, region, or after Orinoco tobacco, which was the strain first developed in, in the early years of the Virginia economy. 
but over the course of the 17th century increasingly uh, became a product designed for the continental European market. Um, the second subregion she identified, in the, the biggest one, in light gray, is known as the sweet-scented subregion. Sweet-scented tobacco was a strain that developed, uh, planters developed in the middle decades of the 17th century and increasingly became the preferred variety uh, that was most in demand on the domestic market in England. And then the final subregion, uh, um, stretching down the south side of the James River and up the Delmarva Peninsula or the eastern shore, um, I label the provisioning subregion. And this area increasingly abandoned tobacco production, uh, particularly over the latter decades of the 17th century, and increasingly became kind of involved in intercolonial trade with the Caribbean island colonies, with goods like uh, uh, pork and beef, corn, wheat, and so forth, and wood products. So the colony was different. And if we overlay uh, Emory Evans's 21 planters onto this map, you can kind of see the bias, right? And that the overwhelming majority of the first families of Virginia had their base of operations in the sweet scented subregion. And this is not by accident, hopefully, as I'll make clear in the course of this talk. Um, okay, so in case you can't see it, only four of these F, of these prominent Virginia families were grounded in the northern neck. They were the Carters, represented here by Robert King Carter, the Lees, represented here by Richard Lee II, the Taylors, represented at the courtesy of John, John Taylor Emery by John Taylor I, and finally William the Fitzhughes, represented here by William Fitzhugh I. But it's more than just this kind of geographic bias that has, has shaped kind of discussion of, of the gentry's rise. Such an approach ignores those families that achieved a similar degree of dominance in county government and society that the FFVs did at the provincial level. We have to, in, in thinking about the rise of the Virginia gentry, we should not discount families such as the Balls and Foxes of Lancaster, the Presleys and Neals of Northumberland, the Masons of Stafford, the Griffins of Old Rappahannock, Richmond County, eventually in 1692, and the Ashtons, McCartys, and Washingtons of Westmoreland. What I'd like to do now is discuss the more important attributes shared broadly across all strata of the Virginia elite, and then move on to examine the circumstances that allowed families such as the Carters, Lees, and Talos to achieve a degree of wealth and prominence that their gentry neighbors did not. Obviously, in, in a, a plantation economy, one, at least in most areas, uh, grounded in the production of tobacco, one of the key elements of, of the gentry's rise was their investments in land. Land could be acquired through, through di three different methods in early Virginia. Of course, the most, the, perhaps the best well-known is the awarding of head rights for the transportation of settlers to the colony, which uh, for every person so transported, the, the, the person doing the transporting received 50 acres of land. And the cost of, of, a tra of transportation, paying for somebody's passage from England to the Chesapeake, roughly cost about six pounds uh, per person. Another way of acquiring land was through buying up land that it had sheeted to the crown. This could be purchased at the much cheaper rate if you had access to it, of two pounds of tobacco per acre. And finally, 
the, uh, a method which evolved over the course of the 17th century and that was not sanctioned by law was that one could purchase rights from the secretary's office at the rate, depending upon your influence and your ability to persuade, uh, of somewhere between one and five shillings per 50 acres. And eventually this method would be enshrined in law and in revision to the statutes in 1705 um, at the rate of five shillings per 50 acres, but the payment in that instance as a result of that law would go to the receiver general uh, for the support of the colony's government rather than to the secretary of the colony and into his pocket. Um, historian Martin Quitt's close study of land patents in seven counties across the colony between 1676 and 1705 suggested that roughly 40% and perhaps as much as 50% of the total acres awarded were patented by county and provincial office holders, collectively whom we might identify, identify as the gentry or the Virginia elite. Of the 32,119 acres patented during these three, three decades in Lancaster and Northumberland, the two northern neck counties that Quit studied. His analysis indicated that 13,446 acres, or 42%, went to members at the gentry. Now at a time when most Virginia plantations, or the plantations of ordinary Virginians, were about 250 to 300 acres, David Fox, the first of Lancaster County, had 6,000 acres. John Washington, the first, had 6,900 acres. William Presley, the first, who died in 1657, had 2,200 acres, and his two sons, William II and Peter Presley, patented another 3,500 acres, so the Presley family as a consortium controlled about 5,700 acres. John Carter I had 10,721 acres. Richard Lee I, at least in something in excess of 16,000 acres, and William Fitzhugh, partly owing to his, his uh, um, position as uh, um, agent of the Northern Neck Proprietary acquired 33,168 acres over the course of his life. So these men owned a great deal of land. Now, of course, the possessions of thousands of acres would have been of little worth without the labor to work it. And a second attribute shared by all strata of the gentry was aggressive investment in slaves. The growth of slavery in the 17th century in many respects is an almost exclusively elite story. Between 1635 and 1660, officeholders claimed 76% of blacks listed in land patents and 82% of those listed, listed in land certificates issued at the county level. These are the mechanisms through which people were awarded those head rights that I just discussed earlier. Between 1661, excuse, yeah, 1661 and 1699, the gentry were awarded 71% of the 1,636 blacks listed in land certificates, which for various reasons, if anybody's interested, I can, I can, I can dive into after the talk is over, um, are far more accurate measure of, of laborers actually imported by individual Virginians. Now, what this means is that far from waiting until the latter decades of the 17th century to begin investing in slaves, the gentry were very, across all ranks, were very aggressive, uh, very aggressive in acquiring them. You can see here this is based on uh, a complete study of all uh, Virginia, surviving Virginia court records between 1635 and, well, ultimately 1730, but in, on this chart through 1700. And you can see from fairly early on uh, both the percentage of gentry with slaves 
and the percentage within their labor forces that were enslaved um, is quite significant, right? The whole, I have a, uh, one of the aspects of my work is focusing on the early, the early um, embracing of slavery by the gentry and how this serves as a prop to gentry power. Now, some individual holdings, uh, you know, uh, I, just by way of kind of breaking this down and personalizing some of this information, uh, George Coclo uh, had 13 slaves. He was a justice of Northumberland, had 13 slaves by 1662. John Ashton and Captain John Appleton of Westmoreland both had nine slaves by the mid-1670s. David Fox, again, one of those prominent gentry families, uh, county gentry families on the northern neck, had 29 of his 32 laborers enslaved by 1669. William Ball had at least 25 enslaved workers by 1694. And John Carter I, who was among the most aggressive, had a labor, total labor force at its death in 1669 of 77 workers, 43 of whom were enslaved blacks and mulattoes. Very aggressive investing in slaves. Um, now, one of the reasons for this gentry dominance, the reason why they're the ones who almost exclusively have access to slaves, is because of the way the slave trade to Virginia was organized in this period. Slaves generally arrived through two routes. One, uh, for those of you who are familiar with this period of Virginia history, was via the Caribbean, uh, particularly coastwise trade, exchanging uh, that beef and pork and corn and wheat uh, in a kind of a bilateral trade with West Indian planters and obtaining slaves through that way. Uh, but the West Indies also kind of figured in transatlantic networks. So uh, my own research in, this, in, in the Barbadian records and the surviving uh, uh, homeward bound invoice account books of the Royal African Company, the English company that had a monopoly over the slave trade between the Restoration and uh, just before the turn of the 18th century, showed that oftentimes merchant correspondents and sometimes planters themselves, Virginians themselves, purchased slaves in Barbados where they were readily available and paid for them using bills of exchange, basically the extension of credit, drawn on London correspondence that they, uh, they dealt with. The other major mechanism or way that slaves reached the colony during this period was via contract deliveries with the Royal African Company that came directly to Virginia from Africa. Now this contract system actually was set up by the Royal African Company when it was rechartered in 1672. And basically the way it worked is that a merchant in England um, uh, would contract for the delivery of a given number of slaves, paying for them at a designated price. The company would then dispatch a ship to Africa, acquire the slaves, transport them to Virginia, hand them off to the merchant, uh, uh, the merchant's factors in the colony, and then they would, they would either keep them or sell them off. And this was then uh, consequently closely intertwined with the consignment trade in tobacco that emerged in Virginia uh, around the 1660s and 1670s. Um, at the beginning of the colony's plantation economy, the tobacco trade worked by ships coming over from England, kind of moving along the creeks and rivers of the region, purchase, offering goods for sale in exchange for tobacco, and then returning back to England uh, where they sold off uh, the tobacco and, and made their profits. Increasingly, leading Virginia planters who could operate on a larger scale opted to trade with England on their own account. So rather than selling their tobacco to merchants in, in, uh, uh, in the James or the York or the Rappahannock or the Potomac, they would send instead load their tobacco on ships that they had made arrangements for 
uh, transporting it, send it over to London on their own account, have London merchants, in many cases, uh, um, uh, the same people that are arranging for these slave deliveries, market it for them, the factors in England would take a commission, and the, be the, the bulk of the proceeds then would redound to the planter. Now there's some major, this also one of, the, one of the ramifications of the emergence of this consignment system is a consolidation in the number of English merchants who are dealing with Virginia and Maryland on a large scale. Among the leading importers in this period were men like John Jeffries, Makaja Perry and Thomas Lane, William Pagan, Alderman Richard Booth, Robert Bristow, and Thomas Stark. And these are the same men who are arranging for these contract deliveries to the of slaves to the Chesapeake. Okay, so this hopefully explains at least briefly why it is that the gentry dominate uh, the ownership of slaves in this period of, of, of the colony's history, but it doesn't really answer why they did so. Um, what was attractive about slavery to them? Now, most historians in kind of examining this question have kind of looked at the economic dimensions of slavery, right? And, then, and some even treating uh, indentured servants, bound servants and slaves as interchangeable elements within a plantation labor force. And to a certain extent, this is true. The economic advantages of slavery, well, among the most obvious is that uh, bound white servants served only for a brief period of time, anywhere from four to seven years in the case of indentured, sometimes longer in the case of servants who were serving under the statute laws of the colony. And this thus required a constant investment of capital to maintain a labor force and ultimately in, uh, kind of placed a cap on how big of an operation an individual planter could develop. Because if you expand too much, your labor costs just continue to expand and are ongoing. Servants, of course, their terms are finite. Slaves serve for life. Right, so that's an obvious advantage. Um, and slave, slavery from almost the, from the very beginning, uh, from the arrival of the first 20 and odd enslaved Africans to Virginia in August of 1619, um, slavery is a perpetual condition as well. So not only the individual slaves that a, a planter purchases will serve him for life, but their children and grandchildren for time in perpetuity. Um, and this is really kind of the crucial aspect of slavery because while well, economically, and there's a, there was a, for a time a great debate on whether slaves produced uh, the same size of tobacco crops as white servants. Uh, the, the research of Lena Walsh recently published in her book Motives of Honor, Pleasure and Profit, I think just uh, 2010, demonstrated that in fact they were just as productive as white servants and I think probably definitively settled that debate. Um, but the, the importance of slavery for the gentry, I would argue, is less economic, although that's certainly important, but more social and cultural. The realities of life in the Virginia colony, turned, it, it transformed or turned the traditional props of gentry and aristocratic power in England on its head. In England, um, obviously, the key to wealth and status and ultimately political power was the ownership of land. You bought, a you bought a portion of land or inherited it. You had tenants who worked the estate um, on long-term leases, short-term leases, and you would take the profits from the squeeze, skim off a, a significant percentage of the profits, and that provided the income to the members of the, of the English gentry and ultimately the aristocracy. 
And in, in, in to my mind, you know, uh, one of the themes that's kind of evolved over the courts and in the historiography on the rise of the Virginia gentry is their concern over economic matters and trade made them somehow different from their English counterparts. And I, I really believe that that is uh, a, a position that is oftentimes grossly overstated. Uh, writers in England at the time cautioned members of the gentry that they needed to be concerned about their imports and their exports, that is to say their income and expenditures. And in, particularly during a period between 1500 and 1650, when agricultural prices in England uh, underwent a sustained period of inflation, they're growing more and more and more, in order to reap the maximum benefit out of their estates, the best English gentlemen, the people who were able to sustain their families in positions of social and political prominence, kept a very close eye on the management of their estates. They are as much businessmen as the gentry themselves. But in Virginia, of course, land is abundant. While some planters would have tenants, particularly in the early 18th century, working on their plantations, the key is control of labor, as much as land, if not more so. And so slavery provides a mechanism of, in, of passing down the productive capacity uh, from one generation to another. It is slavery that sustains economic, uh, social, and political prominence over multiple generations. Because the gentry on both sides of the Atlantic, both in the Chesapeake and in England, do not think uh, necessarily in, in terms of their individual uh, economic or, or social achievement, but rather in terms of lineages. That the, the responsibility in the, in the literature in England, uh, uh, the advice literature to gentry in England is constantly uh, emphasizing the fact that, you know, you're responsible for maintaining the prominence of your family. And I think to understand the Virginia gentry's embracing of slavery fairly early on, at a time when servants were still widely available, demonstrates that they have a mind on this objective, the sustaining not only, not, not only the economic achievement for themselves in their own lifetime, but the sustaining of their families over long periods of time so that their sons and grandsons would have a start in life that would enable them to achieve the same positions as they did themselves. And slavery provides a mechanism to do that. Um, so I, I think this is perhaps probably the most important reason uh, that Virginians began investing in slaves. And this attitude is in many respects reflected in their wills, particularly their early embracing of the mechanisms of primogenitor and entail, traditional legal props of gentry and aristocracy in England to ensure that critical, a critical mass of land and labor would pass down to their descendants and be beyond their ability to dissipate through uh, wildly unbridled consumption. Okay, so if these are, are, are kind of the attributes that are shared broadly across the gentry, what I'd like to do now is kind of turn, turn attention to why is it that certain families surpass the rest. And, and it, all, of the, all of these families uh, that I'm going to focus on began um, with certain advantages. We look at Robert King Carter. My first example, he was the son of John Carter I, a member of the, of the Council of State in Virginia, who, as I already mentioned, had 77 labors, 43 of them enslaved when he died in 1669. He had achieved, he had actually obtained 11 of these slaves, or at least a, a significant number, uh, from another counselor, William Brockus, uh, who had died in 1655, and John Carter did, as so many, um, so many Virginians of his generation did, 
married Brockus's widow and therefore acquired a good portion of his estate. Carter received 1,000 acres of land and one-third of his father's personal property, Robert King Carter, about 14 slaves uh, by the terms of his father's will um, in 1669. But since his elder brother, John II, uh, uh, died with only a daughter in 1690, and the land given to both sons was entailed in the male line, Robert inherited virtually all of his father's lands um, eventually. So he began life with about 10,000 acres of land and 14 14 slaves, more or less, uh, um, to start his career. A very significant advantage. Richard Lee II was the second son of Counselor Richard Lee I, and he inherited, uh, 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 at his father's death in 1664, Paradise Plantation in Gloucester County, together with, quote, all of its laborers, cattle and hogs, tools and utensils, and corn. In, in the elder Richard Lee's will, exactly what the makeup of that labor force was and what its size was is not detailed, so we don't really know. But it was certainly probably fairly sizable. Um, he, he married, very fortunately, Letitia Corbin, the daughter of Counselor Henry Corbin, and through her account uh, acquired another 2,000 acres of land and 400 pounds cash. And, for, and, and, and this is, a, this is a, a characteristic, these are the two instances in, in the case of the Northern Neck uh, Gentry, but as you look across the first families of Virginia, there's this kind of capricious circumstance, and I don't know if it was intentional, I, I assume not, but of timely deaths leading to the consolidation <laughs> of the estates in the, in, these, in the hands of a single heir at a very crucial moment in time. So when Richard's elder brother John died in 1673, Richard acquired, as heir at law, John did not have any, any, any children, Machodic Plantation in Westmoreland County, together with a labor force of 24 workers, 50, 15 of whom were enslaved. The Taylor legacy is a little bit more complicated and actually occurs a little bit later. Uh, John Taylor, the first father, and we don't have an image of him, um, was the nephew and heir of Colonel William Taylor of York County, who was the husband of Elizabeth Kingsmill and a member of the Governor's Council in 1651, and again between 1652 and his death in 1655. William Taylor II, the nephew, was a JP and emigrated to the colony. Probably he was born about 1645. He's definitely in the colony by about 1680. Uh, was a justice of the peace and a militia captain of Old Rappahannock County by 1686 and was later promoted to major and later colonel in Richmond County, um, which Rapp Old Rappahannock was divided into Richmond and Essex in 1692. Much like Richard Lee, uh, William Taylor II married very well. He married Ann Corbin, a younger daughter of Counselor Henry, Henry Corbin, and through her acquired 1,000 acres of land and 450 pounds. And uh, so at William Taylor uh, the first death, uh, he, he likely owned, uh, excuse me, William Taylor the second's death in 1710, he likely owned upwards of 3,000 acres of land and 21 slaves, six of whom were young children. But since he left no will, there's no telling what proportion of this property uh, descended to John Taylor the first uh, pictured here, but his share was likely the most sizable since he was the eldest son and he served as executor of the estate. 
now, John Taylor I, having inherited a considerable amount of property from his father, uh, which certainly was placed him among the, the upper tier of county-level gentry in this period, uh, John Taylor married the widow of Stephen Lyde in 1713, um, a man he had been working with and uh, whose business, whose management of estates, controlled by a number of Bristol's investors he had taken over. And after a contracted court battle with the family, uh, Stephen Lyde's relatives, he eventually acquired thereby another 1,000 acres across the river in Essex County, 10 slaves and 200 pounds in cash. So much like his father, at the, begin the very beginning of his career, John Taylor I ranked in the upper tier of county elites in terms of land and slaves. Okay, so all of, they, all of these families have advantages, and we can imagine that if nothing else had changed, uh, there was a very good chance of them rising higher in society. Robert Carter uh, succeeding his to his father's place on the council, Richard Lee I, perhaps even John Taylor, given his, his entrepreneurial spirit, uh, captured by Laura, Laura Krogan Kamoy in her book, uh, Irons in the Fire, might have also advanced as well. But things didn't remain the same. Um, instead, conditions in the late 17th century changed dramatically following the Glorious Revolution in England and the outbreak of war with France. Now, this chart is drawn from a, kind of a seminal article written by Russell Menard, uh, a longtime historian at Minnesota, and published in the 1970s, which shows kind of the shift, uh, 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 it, it kind of counterbalances tobacco output in the Chesapeake against changes in price over time. And I've marred his chart with these two big red towers. And this is not an homage to September 11th, but rather uh, designates periods of war. Between 1689 and 1697, this is a period uh, known as the Nine Years' War in Europe, King William's War uh, in America when England was at war with France. There was a brief period of uh, interlude of peace between 1698 and 1702. And then another prolonged period of warfare, the War of the Spanish Succession in Europe, Queen Anne's War in the, in, in the Americas, uh, which is designated by the other uh, Red Tower. Now, the, the aspect of this chart that I want to kind of call your attention to, at least initially, is that line that kind of is going up at the top. This is uh, Menard's charting of imports of tobacco into England, um, which is based on customs records. And in kind of examining the tobacco economy, Menard used it as a proxy for Ch Chesapeake production. But what happens, is, and, and he uses that kind of, he, he interpreted that flattening out of, of imports into England as evidence of a prolonged depression uh, in the Chesapeake economy. And the idea that the Chesapeake economy was severely depressed between 1680 and 1714 has long been a staple of the historiography on the region. But that's not exactly what happened. Um, following the outbreak of war, English warships were being snapped up by French privateers at a steady clip, prompting the English government to instill a, a system of embargo and convoy over all of the trades, uh, its overseas trades, not only to the Chesapeake, but to the Caribbean and Africa as well. By the fall of 1691, a group of 15 men styling themselves, quote, the principal merchants of this port concerned in the Virginia and Maryland trade, they're London merchants, that included John Jeffries, Peter Pagan, Makaja Perry, Robert Bristow, and John Carey, 
used their connections to gain a controlling interest over the convoy in England. Now, the way this worked is that each one of these trades were allocated a certain number of sailors. The bulk of many of the sailors within the English Merchant Marine were being pulled, uh, garnered to the use of, of, of the Royal Navy. And so what, the way it would work is that a certain, these sailors would be allocated among however many ships uh, they could man. Those ships would be held in the downs until a specified period of time when they'd be escorted across the Atlantic by English men of war to their various destinations. Um, and then they would achieve, they would uh, load up whatever staples, tobacco in the Chesapeake, sugar in the West Indies, and then be escorted back across the Atlantic uh, by those same men of war. Very efficient system. In the Chesapeake, given its location uh, in the southern part of the bay and its control of the Virginia Capes, the, the scheduling and, and, and management of the convoy was left in the hands of the Virginia Council of State. Right? So these are the, the leading planters of the colony, the ones closest around the governor. They're the ones who determined when the ships would sail and, and so forth. So on either end of this trade, what we have, well, there's two aspects of this I want to mention. First of all, that that flattening out reflects this artificial capping of the number of ships that are involved in the transatlantic trade between Chesapeake and England. Right? Thousand sailors can only man so many ships, and so it's going to remain steady throughout periods of warfare. The other thing is, is that the merchants in England are determining what ships get included in the convoy, and they tend to be the ships that they own, right? Uh, because they're the most, they're the biggest importers, the ones with the most say. And given those connections that they have with the Virginia gentry, particularly the larger planners, the kind of guys who sit on the council of state, you basically have a politically controlled trade at both ends, both by the Virginia council and their merchant correspondents. Now, this is an important distinction because, and now I want to kind of turn to that second line, the line that moves from the upper left down to the lower right, and that's Menard's charting of the farm price of tobacco in Virginia over the course of, uh, of the period covered in the chart, which is up to 1720. And as you can see, from very early on in the colony's history, the price drops steadily down, and then it reaches this kind of depressing state of affairs uh, right towards the end of the 17th century. Now, the important thing here is that this is the farm price for tobacco. It's the price, and Menard worked with probate inventories, accounts in the Chesapeake. Uh, this is the price that planters in Virginia and Maryland would have received from their, for their tobacco when it was purchased uh, in, in the region. But because of the capping of the trade, there emerges a significant spread between the price of tobacco, the price that tobacco of various kinds is commanding in the Chesapeake, and the price that it's commanding on the London market. And that's demonstrated in this chart right here. This is the price of sweet-scented tobacco, and I want to focus particularly on sweet-scented tobacco. Orinoco, uh, the price also uh, goes up on the English market, and this is based on these price currents that circulate throughout London in this period. But Orinoco, as I said, is primarily designated for the European market. So a merchant importing it then had to turn around and bear the risks of transporting that crop across the channel. In the Chesapeake, uh, um, therefore, you have a very depressed price, but sweet-scented tobacco, which is largely consumed in England, you have this dramatic spread with the highest varieties fetching as high as 12. In some cases, the highest price recorded in this period is 15 pence a pound. Right? And what this enabled was leading planners getting their crop to market to England, 
via their merchant correspondence to achieve net returns of between 4.7 and 7.1% per, uh, pence per pound, not the depressing one to less than one penny per pound they would get in Virginia. Now, there's a, anecdotal evidence to support um, this interpretation of um, um, a boom time for these leading planters in uh, the late 17th and early 17th century. Robert King Carter, writing to Francis Lee in July 1702, stated, quote, tobacco hath held up its head high for several years together, but he that measures ex his expenses by his seven last years getting in Virginia may seven years hence probably have little to spend. And here he was cautioning, he was talking to Francis Lee about the, 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 the sons of Ralph Wormley who were profligate spenders in England. Carter didn't know when he wrote this, of course, that we were going to embark on another prolonged period of warfare and those high prices would, would continue to be present. Even more direct is a, is a letter that William Fitzhugh wrote to John Cooper in 1698 in which he wrote, quote, In truth, sir, Orinoco tobacco was generally sorry, and that, and that that was good I could get none for myself. Neither, neither do nor have made anything but sweet for some years, boasting that, quote, I never fall short and sometimes exceed the York sweet price and at Plymouth last December had 23, pound, 23 pounds sterling at Hogshead clear net. Now, in, 16, in a 1691 letter to English trader John Carey, William Byrd had promised that he could ship 300 hogsheads by himself if Carey could send over a suitable vessel which six years later would have brought him a net return of 3,493 pounds sterling 15 pe uh, uh, and 15 shillings at the median hogshead weight of the period and the lowest sweet scented price. So that's a fairly conservative estimate. In 1720, uh, uh, well, so planters during this period are reaping a windfall of profits. Off, off the tobacco that they're sending over for England. And we see this sending over to England. We see this evidenced in a number of different ways. In 1720, an account taken of the remaining state of William Churchill's widow Elizabeth, who had been previously married to Councilor Ralph Wormley, listed cash sums in the hands of Virginia and English factors totaling over 3,600 pounds sterling. That's cash. That's not the value of her slaves and plantations, everything in Virginia, just cash that she has available. Now, with these kinds of windfall profits, planters were able to invest heavily, expanding their, their plantations and their enslaved labor forces. Robert King Carter was able to buy near fourscore, about 80 slaves from Colonel George Braxton of King Queen County in 1727, picking, quote, the choice of the ship, three men to one woman at 20 pounds per head. In order to cover their costs, he drew on no less than five different merchants whom he regularly consigned tobacco for the total sum of 1,490 pounds Virginia currency. Now, the thing that's kind of extraordinary about that is the largest inventory labor force in Virginia in the 17th century belonged to Carter's elder brother, John. In 1690, it numbered 170 slaves, 107 slaves, excuse me. So here's Carter buying 80 in one shot with cash. Um, in addition to control over the convoy, this alliance of leading planters and London merchants succeeded in eliminating loose or bulk tobacco from the trade, which had been an objective since really the 1670s, eliminating the monopoly of the Royal African Company over the English transatlantic slave trade, which dramatically opens up the availability of enslaved workers to Chesapeake planters during this period, and forcing uncooperative Virginia Governor Francis Nicholson from office. The leading families of the Northern Necks solidified their positions of dominance during these years. 
Richard Lee at the de- uh, Richard Lee, excuse me, uh, at his death in 1714, owned well over 20,000 acres of land. And although the extent of his slave holdings can't be determined, his inventory and will together named 53 slaves. John Taylor I, incredibly successful, uh, at his death in 1747, had 20,000 acres of land and at least 327 slaves. But the, the most successful of all was King Carter, who at his death in 1732 owned more than 300,000 acres in in at least nine different counties and no less than 736 slaves distributed on 49 different quarters. This is a scale of operation. It's unsurpassed in in, uh, the history of the colony. Given these accomplishments, it is hardly surprising that Governor Alexander Spotswood would feel threatened by what he described as, quote, a hereditary faction of designing men writing the Earl of Orkney in 1719 that if their dominance uh, continued to be left unchecked, it would raise them, quote, raise them to an insulting height of power. I take the power, interest, and reputation of the king's governor in this dominion to be now reduced to a desperate gasp, he wrote, and if the present efforts of the country cannot add new vigor to the same, then the haughtiness of a Carter, the hypocrisy of a Blair, the inveteracy of a Ludwell, the brutishness of a Smith, the malice of a bird, the conceitedness of a grime, and the, consil- the scurrility of a Corbin, with about a score of base disloyalists and ungrateful Creolians for their adherence, must for the future rule this province. As the wartime boom in sweet scented prices receded in the mid-1720s, however, the alliance between the Virginia elite and their erstwhile merchant allies began to fray, a process culminating in Parliament's passage of the Colonial Debts Act in 1732. This legislation, which put Chesapeake planners' real estate at risk for book debts established by the oath of a British merchant, in contrast to the legal uh, protection afforded real property in England. Now, all of a sudden, all an English merchant has to do to claim indebtedness, uh, uh, a Virginia planner is indebted to him and sees his real property in Virginia is say that he owes him money. Following passage of this act, the passage of this act in 1732 outraged King Carter who only weeks before his death decried the reduction of Virginians to the status of second-class subjects with the empire and bemoaned the tyranny of the merchants who are daily increasing their oppressions upon us, adding, it is an old adage that oppressions make a wise man mad. Ironically, it was this same year that William Byrd II ventured westward to call upon former Governor Spotswood, then living in retirement at his Germana estate. As their conversation turned to public affairs, particularly the controversy then raging in Massachusetts over the settling of a permanent salary on the province's governor, Spotswood famously remarked, quote, that if the assembly in New England would stand bluff, he did not see how they could be forced to raise money against their will. For if they should direct it be done by act of parliament, which they have threatened to do, though it be against the rights of Englishmen to be taxed, but by their representatives, yet they would find it no easy matter to put such an act in execution. Now, decades would pass, of course, before Spotswood's prescient comments would prove true. And certainly, you know, Virginia kind of muddled through the middle decades of the 18th century, perhaps experiencing prosperity during the in, uh, prolonged periods of war in the 1740s, and finally in the Seven Years' War between 1756 and 1763. But that idea of second-class status within the English Empire continued to stick in their craw. And as relations with England resulting from uh, following parliamentary uh, taxation of the colonies, the Sugar Act, the Stamp Act, and so forth in the early 1760s, 
the planters of Francis Lightfoot Lee's generation, grandson of Richard Lee II and husband of Rebecca Taylor, the granddaughter of, uh, granddaughter of John Taylor I, would take matters in their own hands. But that is a story for another time. Thank you. I'd be happy to answer any questions. Yes, sir. Well, the thing is that's so interesting about the, 17, the 1732 Debts Act, um, it's that in this period between 1688 and 1714 and, and lasting into the 1720s, um, Virginia had the leading planters of Virginia through their alliance, their cooperation with these London merchants, have a voice directly at the center of empire that's listening to them. So the Board of Trade that's kind of regulating the government of English dominions, not only Chesapeake, but all over the empire, regularly consults the leading merchants involved in these colonies in terms of how to handle things, like the, con the convoy system, for instance. And so, but what happens is this relationship, this voice at the center of empire, as the sweet scented, uh, uh, price of sweet scented kind of declines in the mid beginning in the mid 1720s, you actually have kind of an atrophying of the consignment system. Uh, it, it continues to exist, but the uh, particularly following the Act of Union in 1707, increasing involvement of Scottish merchants in the, in, the, in the Chesapeake tobacco trade, that voice at the center of empire really begins to atrophy. And the, the, the thing about the Colonial Debts Act is it, it, it represents basically the collapse of this alliance that had proved so beneficial uh, to the leading planners of Virginia, and in my argument, a key to their rise to dominance. Uh, the, the first families of Virginia solidify their positions during this period uh, in terms of their control over land, their control of uh, the size of their enslaved labor forces, and the, the social and political power that that affords them. And yet, now this alliance is coming apart, and Carter's frustration, and now he's talking about the oppressions of the English merchants, I mean, this is something that's going to continue to happen. The empire worked for Virginians during this prolonged period of warfare. Increasingly, after 1732, following the Colonial Debts Act, it, in it increasingly stops to work for them, which is ultimately the thing that leads to revolution. I mean, Spotswood sitting out there in the middle of nowhere talking about a dispute uh, in Massachusetts, not about what's happening with the Colonial Debts Act. I mean, it's kind of interesting that it happens that exact same year but what he says about standing bluff, Francis Lightfoot Lee and the Virginians of that generation coming to the kind of the realization, the conclusion in their own minds that the empire doesn't work for them, make a decision to stand bluff. And that's kind of what I'm trying to get out there. Yes, Mr. Sir. Combs. Yes, ma'am. Was there any effort to um, send out a decree or whatever you'd call it for what the planters, what crops they should raise? 
send out a decree. Well, well, the realities of this system, it, it works very well, um, obviously, for the Virginia elite. Um, I would argue, and I didn't focus it on, on it in the talk, but I would argue that it also works very well for a number of the smaller planters in Virginia because these, these bigger planters are not only sending over their own crops uh, to England, but they're purchasing the crops of the smaller planters that surround them, that they have in their orbit. Um, so sweet-scented tobacco growers do pretty well in these periods. In fact, Lorena Walsh's research shows that sweet-scented, even in the Chesapeake, maintains a, an elevated price relative to Orinoco um, throughout that period. This system does not work at all for Orinoco growers, and particularly Maryland. They don't control the convoy. They have to basically take this, whatever the Virginians give them in terms of cargo space, and this is a very difficult time for them. Um, in, the, in the case of the provisioning re subregion, which is not connected to the Chesapeake at all, I think it's also a very good time. Not only my own research uh, using uh, uh, in, the, in the prices of the uh, provisioning trade show a threefold increase uh, in the price of various goods Virginians shipped to the West Indies during these war years. And of course, as these fleets kind of collect in Hampton Roads, um, you have this city of seamen that are just consuming beef and pork and wheat and English men of war spending pounds sterling on provisioning uh, their fleet. In fact, an, a letter from an English admiral that sent, sent down to Virginia, I think it's in, uh, it's, in the, it's in during the period of Queen Anne's War, he basically instructs uh, the Virginia governor to buy up all the pork he can get his hands on because he's sending down a fleet. So I think this is also a good time for them. People are making their decisions about what to grow. I mean, I'm sure those who are in the disadvantaged areas are retrenching. It's a difficult time for them. There, there's no doubt in my mind that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of hogsheads of Orinoco tobacco that are rotting dockside in Maryland. And in fact, the, the, the evidence that we have from Maryland, they hate this system. It's a disaster for them. It's not for Virginians. So I hope that answers your question. There's nothing politically dictated about what people should and should not do. Uh, question, sir. Were there similar dynamics, uh, interactions, uh, events, and so on uh, going on elsewhere in the other colonies, South Carolina, so forth? Well, South Carolina is, a, a, is an infant colony in this period. It's only founded in 1670. Um, so. That's perhaps not a great example. But in the West Indies, yes, the convoy regime really focuses on Barbados. Barbados is like the O'Hare Airport of the Caribbean of the late 17th century. In terms of trade from England, trade from Africa, trade from North America, people come to Barbados and then disperse to Jamaica and the Leeward Islands. And, and that's owing in large part to Barbados's position as the easternmost of the Lesser Antilles. This, these are profitable years for Barbados. Jamaica is devastated by this, and the Leeward Islands are as well. Wartime is very, very difficult. And, and I think the thing that, uh, in, in this interpretation I've developed along with uh, uh, my colleague and, and frequent collaborator, Doug Bradburn, uh, in fact, much of the information I'm giving here is from an article he published in the William Mary Quarterly last summer. Um, but it's important that we kind of look beyond generalizations about 
Was this period of depression? Was it good? Was it? And look more specifically at groups of people in different regions on how kind of the unfolding of events shape things differently. I haven't studied the Caribbean material nearly as closely, but from what I can discern from what I have done, it's, it's not nearly, I mean, it's actually pretty good in Barbados, which is able to get its sugar to England, not so good for other islands in the English West Indies. Yes, sir. Can you speak a little more about entail and the role that planners and teams in that? And also, it kind of seems like there's a comparable family dynasty in the merchants and the London merchants that have continuity with these particular families. Well, yeah, but the London merchants eventually, with the, following the Act of Union, they'll lose their position with the, as the Scots get more deeply involved in the trade. And there's also changes in terms of the drawbacks on duties and stuff that actually bankrupts a lot of these larger London firms early in the 18th century. Um, with respect to primogenitor and entail, primogenitor, of course, is the practice by which inheritable property passes to the eldest son. This is kind of the standing state of affairs in English common law and in Virginia as well. So if you have a person that dies intestate, that is to say without a will, by law, all of his property, except for the third that's given to his widow, is going to pass to the eldest son. And writings on the time like Coke and so forth draw out these elaborate kind of schematics about how these estates descend. Entail is, is a, a mechanism that allows a person who's acquired property to direct the line of, ascent, of descent. It, and it merely is, in wills, it's reflected in, 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 the, uh, in putting in a phrase that says, you know, I, John Coombs, give to my daughter, Jackson Caroline Coombs, you know, all my house and property to her and the heirs of her body lawfully begotten forever. And what that means is she only has a life interest in the estate. She can't sell it. She, there's restrictions on what she can lease with it. She can't pass it on to her children. In fact, if, unless I, I could say the heir is male of her body lawfully begotten, I could say the heir is female of her body lawfully begotten forever. She doesn't really, it basically, every time when she dies, my dead hand rises from the grave and points at the next heir. <laughs> and what this means in practical terms is that if, you know, uh, a grandson, a, a great-grandson of one of these men who had worked so hard to establish uh, one of these great estates, you know, spends too much money on finery or, or drink or whatever, that property that's entailed on him cannot be gotten by creditors. They can't get at the, the land. They can't get at the slaves. Um, and so it, it protects it, and it ensures a presence. I mean, in other, and it's not just the gentry. I mean, this is a practice that's kind of, it's largely confined to the gentry over much of the century, but there is a peak in entail provisions on all strata of Virginia society toward the end of the 17th century. Um, a great example is a guy named Nicholas Sessoms, who came over to the colony as an indentured servant, worked in the home of, of Arthur Allen in Surrey County. And uh, Allen actually kind of helped him get his feet on the ground. He worked his, uh, um, he extended his indenture. His, Allen was kind of a mentor to him. And at his death in, I think, I believe it's 1712 or 1713, he'd acquired a, a, a significant amount of property, probably eight, 900 acres and about 15 slaves. And in his will, he had three sons. He gave each one of those sons an equal portion, but he entailed it. So therefore, I mean, for people, and this is where I think it speaks to their concern with lineage, 
there is always going to be assessums on that property. And in other wills, they'll state, it's fine, you know, somebody named Coombs must always have this land. It's very important to them. And, and primogenitor and entail in particular is the mechanism by which they kind of achieve that goal. Well, there's Virginia kind of experiments with that in, in, this, in the 1690s. They're actually doing this by custom before it's instilled in law. In the 1705 revision of the laws, you're allowed to basically do that, connect slaves to specific pieces of property. In fact, King Carter, when he, he makes, he wrote his will initially, and then when this law was passed, he kind of went back and changed it so that uh, certain plantations that he, he gave to his sons, slaves would be connected with those plantations. The problem is this proves problem this proves quite difficult, in fact, unworkable, because those slave populations continue to reproduce, continue to grow, and eventually you have lots of slaves and a limited amount of land. So the uh, Virginians actually will reverse that or get rid of that law. But if you just entail slaves on a descendant and land kind of separately, it works. I mean, it, it works for them. Yes. <laughs> well, yes, the, the technical term for it is rent-seeking, but yes. Um, the, well, I mean, all of these planters, you know, they, they, they had, regardless of what area of Virginia you're talking about, but if I'm a small planter in a time of peace, you know, I have a number of options available, right? That, that ship can come down the river, guy will say, I'll give you X amount of, per, you know, amount of money, it's going to be a barter trade, so he's going to basically give him credit for goods and stuff in exchange for your tobacco. But what's also happening even before this period is that these smaller planters are going and buying the things they need at the stores of their larger neighbors. So they accrue debts over the course of the year. And yes, they're getting the farm price for tobacco, um, which is that penny per pound, or in the case of sweet scent, about 2.1 pence per pound. Um, but the thing is, though, is that I, I don't want to overstate the course. It, it's not like it's collusion, necessarily, between these great planters. In fact, they compete with one another. With the letters of William Byrd are filled with his concerns about competition from what he calls Pagan's Concern. It's a group of John Pleasance and Richard Kennan, a couple of planters in Henrico, who are tied to William Pagan. Uh, Byrd, along with a number of planters in Henrico and Charles City and James City, are connected with Makaja Perry. And so you have these kind of consortiums of great planners and consignment relationships that compete with one another. So there still is competition. But, and, and I think this is one of the reasons, I mean, they could have stuck it to these people unbelievably because nobody's getting a hogshead, a barrel, a leaf of tobacco on one of these ships unless they say so. But there's a limitation on that because there is some competition that exists within the system. But as a group, it's rent seeking, yes the political manipulation of the market. John, I'm gonna have to cut it off there. We are past my time, but thank you so much. I'm sure you'll be willing to answer questions. Sure. Thank you.